So we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 13 and starting at verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. And we'll now jump through to verse 36. Verse 36, then Jesus left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Tonight, the second reading is taken from Book of Matthew, chapter 28 from verse 16 to the end. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authorities in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. How are we, church? Good, good, good. We're good? Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your Bible has been read to us and indeed taught to us, we ask that you would deliver us from unbelief and disobedience. 
Help us to encourage one another that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but produce in us the fruit of your Spirit for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How big is the church to you? I remember when I was, oh, but about five years old, and I was talking to one of my friends, and at this point, I'd been to church all my life, all those five years, and my friend at school said that he went to church, and I realized, hang on, he goes to a church, but not my church, that must mean there are more than one church. And I had this epiphany, the world does not revolve around me. I'm still learning it. But it was a realization, the church is bigger than I thought it would be at that stage. When we think church, we tend to think small. The local church, us, those around us, what, what we're doing here right now. But in the last, I guess, image or idea as we come to this series of looking at true community, why we need the church we need to have a bigger understanding of who the church is. I remember being up at the Blue Mountains looking at the three sisters and there was a family who, who were tourists and there was the dad taking photos of the beautiful Jamison Valley view and there was his son just playing with some rocks. He's like, Johnny, Johnny, look, look at this, look at this. But there was Johnny playing with rocks, amazed by them. And that can be us. So focused on the small that we fail to look up and look big. Uh, in the Nicene Creed, which is a creed written in 325 AD, so a while back, it says this, and we say it often in church. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, in the last two weeks, we looked at the words one and holy Tonight we're going to look at those two words, Catholic and apostolic, see what they mean for us. So let's look at the word Catholic. As soon as I, you hear that, I presume you're probably thinking uh, the Pope and Mary and all those kind of things. But the word Catholic, it's not Roman Catholic, but the word Catholic means universal. All of God's people, all Christians together. Uh, in Ephesians 5, verse 25, it says, Christ loved the church. That the church is bigger than we think. It's not just us. And there are three reasons why we need to understand that the church is a universal church, all of God's people. The first reason is this. It stops us from being naive. Because we have a tendency to think, Right now, we're at the peak of Christianity. You know, you sort of think in terms of church history. There was Jesus. There was the Acts, the early church. And then there was Hillsong. It, we, we miss a whole bunch, right? We miss 2,000 years. And the reason why we, we don't appreciate that there's been Christians throughout the ages is really because of our culture, Western culture, where as C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery where we look back at the past and we think, cool, but we're educated. They weren't. 
Those people back in the day were oppressed. We're enlightened. Those people back in the day, they didn't know any better. We do. And so we look back at the past and we turn our nose up. That, that's what we tend to do in Western culture. And that sort of seeped in, in into the church where we look back at the church throughout the ages. We're aware of it, but we don't really think we need them. It's just me, my Bible, and a latte. But to understand the universal church, it, we need to see that Christians have been worshipping God throughout the ages. So what that could mean for you is actually look into church history. L- read about the creeds and the, the moments in church history. And they're actually important because you'll soon find out that the heresies, the errors that we believe today, or you'll find today, aren't all that new, but they were there 500,000 years ago. I encourage you, read a biography of a Christian who's not from your time. And you'll actually learn how they live out their faith in a time that's different to yours. The reason why we say creeds in church, we say about once a month here, because we're aligning ourselves not with just our church, but with churches throughout the ages saying this is what Christians who believe the Bible hold to. So that's the first thing. It stops us being naive. The second thing is it stops us from being ignorant. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I remember being in North Thailand in Chiang Rai, and I had this realization, God is not white. Up until that point, I just presumed that God spoke English and only English, that he preferred contemporary rock music as his preferred worship style. I just made God into the God who I thought he should be. He was kind of like me. But as I saw Thai Christians reading the Bible in Thai, singing songs in Thai, doing church Thai stuff, I realized the church is so much bigger than I realized. That it is made up of Christians, as it says, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That beautiful image there in Revelation 7 is the reality that the church is not just the Western church. It is a great multitude of people from different cultures. And the reason why that is important is because we need to learn from our brothers and sisters who are from different cultures than our own. Um, I, as I prepare sermons, read commentaries, uh, theologians who have insights in terms of the Bible, that kind of thing. And I realized that I think almost all my commentaries are written by people who are Western. And I think that's a problem. I've actually had to sort out theologians who are African, who are Asian. Not that they're going to show me a different gospel. It's the same gospel, but they're going to highlight things that I might miss over. So I'll give you an example. The story of the prodigal son who is walking to his father, and his father sees him. And what does his father do? Runs to him. There's a Middle Eastern scholar who highlighted the fact that Middle Eastern men do not run. It is a very shameful thing to run. And yet there is the father running to his son in love. 
I need Christians from other cultures to highlight things that I might miss over. But we also, as a whole, we need brothers and sisters from other cultures because they expose blind spots. Blind spots where we have taken things from our culture and blended them with Christianity. We need them to point out the times where we say, you know how you love comfort, Western Christians? That's not a Christian virtue. It's actually idolatry. You know how you say, we say, I've got to be true to myself. That's not a Christian virtue. That's just selfishness. We need them to prod us and poke us and expose blind spots that we've just assumed are Christian when in the end are just our culture. And the third thing is it brings hope when you have a big understanding of the church. When I think of the word census, I think also of the word crashing, not just because of the website, but the decline of Christians in this country. Every census that comes out, it gets less and less and less. And it can seem demoralizing. I feel like you just want to give up. But if you have a good understanding of the universal church, you see Christianity is growing at a staggering rate. You know, last Sunday, there were more Christians attending church in China than Europe. In 1910, there were only 12 million people who were Christian in the continent of Africa. Now it's 630 million. When you step back and look up just from our patch and you see what God is doing in calling people to himself, it brings great hope. In the end, it's true what Jesus said. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But the universal church is more than just thinking bigger, right? It taps into who is truly part of the church. I'm going to introduce two words here, visible and invisible. Those who we can see and those who we can't. Uh, People who say they're Christian and people who actually are Christian. To help us understand this a bit more, we turn to Matthew 13, a story, a parable that Jesus told. It's on page 839. In this parable, Jesus said there was a farm who sowed seeds of wheat into the ground, and at night the enemy came and sowed seeds of weeds, and it became a gardening nightmare. And at first, it's, it's not obvious, because as the seeds go in, it's, they all look the same. Just dirt and that kind of thing. But as it says in verse 26, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appear. It becomes more obvious. The servants have an idea. Let's, let's remove the weeds. But what's the response? Verse 29, no. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I'll tell the harvesters first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The point Jesus is making is that there are two types of people in this world. Those who are for Jesus and bear fruit. Those who are part of the kingdom of God. And those who are not. And it is only on that final day, harvest day, judgment day, where who is a weed and who is a wheat will be revealed. It is that day. 
But our temptation is to, our danger is to categorize too early. Saying this is a wheat, this is a wheat. But in Jesus' wisdom, he's saying, don't do it. Because you might confuse a weed for a wheat or a wheat for a weed. It is only until that final day when the division will be made. See, what we can see is us, the local church. What we can see is when you say, I trust Jesus. And you see fruit from that. But what we can't see is the spiritual condition of our own heart. I honestly don't know whether you've put your trust in Jesus. You don't honestly know if I've put my trust in Jesus. I graciously presume you have because you say it and I see it lived out. But because we don't know what's going in each other's hearts, we, we don't know. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says, The Lord knows those who are his. It's like this. Uh, ultimately, I have no idea what your financial situation is. I could guess. You know, try and work out the shops you go to, the car you have, holidays you go on. I could try and guess how much you have. But in the end, I've got no idea. You know who does? The banks. They've got an idea. They know how much money comes in, how much debt you have, all the assets, all that. They have access to information that is not accessible to me. And just like the where you're at with Jesus, honestly, personally, where you're at with Jesus, have you put your trust in him? I have no access. We have no access to what's going on in here. But one day, the invisible will be made visible. Hebrews uh, chapter 12 says, You have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. That one day, all of God's people, all who have put their trust in Jesus, will gather around the throne of Jesus. And that day, all who have truly put their trust in Jesus will be there. And for the first time, the church will gather throughout time and throughout this world. They will gather around Jesus and will know who is truly part of the church. Those who have honestly asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins and call him their Lord and Savior. But because we don't know who will respond, because we don't know who will be there on that final day, our job is to share the good news of Jesus with everyone and anyone. This comes to the second word in the Nicene Creed, which we're going to look at, the apostolic church. That word apostolic is standing for the apostles. The apostles were witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. None of us in this room saw that. None of us. The apostles did, and they wrote it down to pass on so that we could believe. God never wrote down a single word, though. 
Jesus never penned a single sentence of the Bible. But he entrusted the apostles to pass on what they saw, what they experienced, what they witnessed. And so they stand between Jesus and us. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Without them, we'd have no idea. And what I find amazing is God could have spread the news about Jesus a million different ways. But you know how he does it? Through you and I, as we pass on what the apostles saw. Us. Now, if I want to get an important message out, I become a control freak. I, 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 I sort of want to make sure each word is right, and I want to make sure it's delivered, and, and make sure it's, it's been sent. But Jesus, so God has entrusted us to pass on the message of his son. In Romans chapter 10, it says this, How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How then can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And How can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I wonder if you've ever thought of your feet as beautiful. You look at them, a bit hairy, a bit stinky. Ingrown nail, bunions, spurs, all sorts of things. But you walk into a space where there's someone who doesn't know Jesus and you open your mouth and you talk about him. And the Bible says your feet are stunning because you are sharing life-changing news to that person. And because we don't know who will accept and who won't, who's a wheat and who's a weed, we are called to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors, the networks we have, and the nations. Uh, we're not called to save Christian culture, save Christian. We're called to save the lost. And I imagine there are people in your life right now who you think, you know what, James? I don't think they would ever become a Christian. They are so angry at God. They are so hurt that there is no way they would accept. What's the point? I'm pretty sure most people thought that about Paul the Apostle. Voted in his year to least likely follow Jesus. And yet he did. There are some of you in this room who if you had talked to your former self 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago that you're a Christian and you follow Jesus, you would have laughed in your face. He, but yet here you are. We have no idea who will accept the news of Jesus. And on that final day, where the church gathers around the Savior, there will be great rejoicing, but I reckon there will also be a great deal of shock and awe. As you see people from your school, 
and uni and, and workplace. In fact, you, you accepted Jesus. You asked him for, what a joyous day that will be. You know, Peter and John, the apostles, when they spoke about Jesus in Jerusalem, in the Sanhedrin, they were grabbed by the religious leaders and they were said one thing, shut up. Don't talk about this Jesus anymore. Shut your mouth. You know what they said? We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. We can't help it. Because when you're excited about something, you can't keep it down. It just needs to come out. When you go on an amazing holiday, when you eat at a great restaurant, you buy something, what do you do? Oh, you've got to go there. You, you've got to visit this. Oh, that will change your life. It's amazing. You evangelize. That's what you do. When you've tasted of Jesus' love, and you see that he would forgive all my sins, he, he would die for... You can't help but share that you've got to meet this Jesus. He'll change your life. Now, to be honest, things will get dull. You'll be less passionate, less excited at times in your life. But it's like me talking about the Sunshine Coast. I love the Sunshine Coast. Being there on holidays. And I will talk to you about how great the Sunshine Coast is for hours on end. All the things you can do. But there's times when I forget. So you know what I do? Go back to the photo album. Ah, yes. Look at those beaches. There's times when I forget or I get less excited about Jesus if I'm honest. What do I do? Go back to the Gospels. Read them. I realize, why am I keeping this to myself? There are some of you here tonight, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Yet there is someone in your life, maybe, who brought you along to church tonight, or who you're in some sort of contact with, who keeps talking about Jesus, maybe a little, maybe a lot. Ask yourself this question, why? It ain't cool to talk about Jesus, that's for sure. And yet they keep doing it. Why? Maybe it's because perhaps they have something that you need. They've met someone who you need to meet. Keep exploring it, I'd encourage you. So if you're a Christian, we're called to share the good news of Jesus to everyone we meet. I just want to end now by sharing one of my biggest fears as a, as a minister. Um, I, the thing I, one of the things I worry about a lot is not so much people out there who haven't heard about Jesus, but people who have and yet have not personally put their trust in Jesus. Not so much people out there, but people in here who come week to, by week to church, who listen after sermon after sermon, sing song after song, but have actually never put their trust in Jesus. Because the reality is, if that's you, the Bible says you're heading towards hell. One of the scariest verses in the entire Bible is Matthew 7. Jesus says this, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Just because you've entered a church building or you say, I'm Anglican or Baptist or Christian, just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're ultimately part of God's church. Because you can belong to a church, but if you personally don't belong to Jesus, then in the end, you don't belong to the church. You need to do the Father's will. What's that? What have you done with my son? He says. My fear is that there may be people in this room who act like a Christian, but not are a Christian. That you turn up to church, but you have not turned your heart towards Christ. You may fool the people around you, but no, you cannot fool God. There was a guy called William who lived in South Sydney. And he went to church all his life. And he was a warden in the church as well. And at about seven years of age, a guest preacher came to his church. And that preacher talked about the need everyone has for the forgiveness of sins. And he sat there. And for the first time, he realized he needed forgiveness. He had never asked Jesus to take away his sin. And he went up to the guest preacher and he said with tears in his eyes, I think I've, I think I've just become a Christian. That would have been a surprise to everyone in that church. It wasn't a surprise to God. Because he knows where you're truly at. Some of you may be thinking, you know what? That's me. I've done Christian things. I've been around church a while, but I've never actually placed personally my trust in Jesus. I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to do that. To become a Christian, to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Now granted, you might be thinking, I don't know if I could do it, it's, it's, it's a bit embarrassing, right? Uh, you might be in even position of, of leadership here. Know this, it doesn't matter. We're not here to embarrass, it is not an embarrassing thing, it is a moment of rejoicing. For you to say, I don't want to just be around Christians, do the church. I actually want to say to Jesus, I need you as my Lord and Savior. If that's you, then I'm going to pray a short prayer, which you can make. I'm going to say it line by line, and you can repeat these words into your own heart to God. 
So let's close our eyes. And if you feel led to do this, then join with me. Lord Jesus, I am sorry for rejecting you in my life. For thinking that what I have done will save me. Please forgive me. There is nothing I can do to earn your love. But only you, Lord Jesus, can bring me into right relationship with God. Thank you that you died and rose again. And please help me to live for you. Amen.